Ezekiel chapter 8. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, chap verses 1 through 18. And we're going to take our time to break it down and unpack it. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had, appeared, had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you'll still see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of, uh, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? each in his room of pictures. For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will act in wrath, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take our time to break this down. And hopefully we'll get through the chapter wherever we stop, where we'll pick up on the 3rd of January. But if you go back to verse 1, this chapter begins with a date. Here we see it's in the 6th year, in the 6th month, on the 5th day of the month. Now, if you remember I taught you back at the beginning of our study, all the dates will correlate back to 597 B.C. and also tied to the first year that, that, that he had his vision. So go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. We see in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Keber Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, priest, son of the Abuzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Keber Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. If you remember, we did our study way back. We knew that, that the... Jehoiachin was taken captive in 597 B.C. by the Babylonians in their second wave of attacking uh, Jerusalem. 
And Ezekiel and his wife and 10,000 people were taken captive at that time to Babylon. And so we know now that from this, that this was the, the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. So it had already been five years since Jehoiachin had been taken captive. What year was Jehoiachin taken captive? 597. Keep that in mind. 597 is when he was taken captive. Five years later, which is now around 593 B.C., he actually is getting his first vision. Now, going back with that in mind, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, this is tied back to 597, all right? He had his first vision five years, roughly, after the, the captivity or the, the, uh, the being taken in exile. And now, another year and a couple of months later, this is around August, September of that year, 592 B.C., he has his second vision. And actually, as we go into this study, you're going to see chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are all a series of visions that Ezekiel's been given by God to then pass the messages on to the people. All right? So, they were taken captive in 597 B.C., around 593 B.C. Remember, the numbers count down as we get toward the time of the birth of Christ. In 593 B.C., he had his first vision, and then a year and two months later, he has this next vision, all right? Now, I want you also to see that God took Ezekiel in a vision to Jerusalem. Ezekiel's body stayed in Babylon, but he was transported in his spirit to Jerusalem to see what was happening in the temple. And I'm going to clarify this in just a second, to see what was happening in, in Jerusalem in the temple at that time. Now, to help you understand about this being taken a vision, as I was kind of praying over this, you, we're at this time of year where we celebrate Christmas. What's one of the most famous Christmas stories that's always told this time of year? The Christmas Carol, right? You ever know in those stories, he's visited by these ghosts or whatever they are? Does he leave his bedroom? Yes and no, isn't it? His body never really leaves the bedroom, yet at the same time, as far as he knows, he's left his bedroom. And they take him in these visions to see the past, the present, and the future, and all that. That might help you grasp a little bit. The Spirit of God takes Ezekiel. That's why Paul, when he was taken in visions to see the third heaven, to see paradise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. And he kept saying it over and over. Whether in the body or out of the body. In other words, it was such a real experience, I felt like I was in my body. I mean, I could see my body, and I kind of felt like I was there, but I could have been out of my body. I don't really know, because I kind of flew a little bit, too, and... Ezekiel's body stays there in his house, there in Babylon with the elders around him. But while he's there, the Spirit takes him in a vision, picks him up and hauls him off to Jerusalem to show him, listen closely, what was happening at that time. He's not being shown what they've done in the past. He's being shown what is happening in Jerusalem still. Remember, they've already had the first siege. And now they've had the second, that was in 605. The second siege has been in 597, and ultimately in 586, they'll be finally taken out of the land after the third siege because of the judgment that Ezekiel's prophesying about. But I want to show you from Scripture the proof that it's happening right then. And the proof is in um, chapter 8, verses 5 through 12. Look closely what it says. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, the north, gate, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? Not have done, are doing. The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary. 
And then if you see, jump down and uh, look at verse 8, then he, uh, verse 9. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Jump over to verse 11. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing? Do you see it? All the way through. This is happening right then. Now, for those of you that have been a part of our study and saw in the last few times that we've been together, what's really amazing about the fact that this is happening right now in Jerusalem? Do you remember? Remember Shaphan. Oh, and you see here, look at, look at verse, uh, verse tw- uh, 11. Before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Shaphan was the one that we saw who had read the law to Josiah. He wept, tore his clothes. The people responded, and Jazaniah went and tore everything down. They got rid of all the idol worship and destroyed the high places and all that. Thirty-six years later, Ezekiel's writing this, and they're all right back at it. Only 36 years later. Isn't that crazy? Only 36 years later. And not only that, leading them is Shaphan's son, Jazaniah. Don't put your confidence in man. All right. Go ahead. What I was going to share, we don't, we don't think about what was going on in the wilderness because it, and when God was bringing the people out of Egypt and much idolatry going on, they called it the temple of Satan was going on, that he called them back. It, you know, I had to constantly put that into their faces. I mean, they're doing the same thing. Um, We're going to talk about that actually a little bit later tonight because you're going to see part of what God was doing in setting up holy days and holy places was not to get us to follow the law, but to show the distinction between the false gods and holy God. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But I know what you're saying. This has been their whole life. That's all they had known for the 400 years that they were in slavery in Egypt. They had been worshiping these false gods with the Egyptians. God pulled them out. So what was the reason why God pulled the nation of Israel out of Egypt to the wilderness? So they can worship me on the certain mount. You remember that? And, and we're all going to worship something, folks. I hope you understand that. We're going to all worship something, and we're going to get to that tonight. We're going to do some of this stuff today. So when Ezekiel's taken in the entrance of the inner court on the south side of the temple complex, God shows him an idol there that God describes as an image of jealousy. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. Isn't that interesting? You're going to see later on that this whole time that this false worship is going on in the temple complex, God's Spirit is still there. His glory is still there. They just turn to turn their, choose to turn their back to Him and worship all these other things. You're going to see later on tonight, if we get there, there comes a point, though, not long after this, that the Spirit of God leaves the temple. And ironically and interestingly, He leaves in the exact same way that the, Jesus is going to come back in, which is kind of cool. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and how often do we turn our backs? Boy, you guys are already up to speed with me. Man, I better get going because... We, uh, we got a lot to get covered. Uh, what I want to do, how does God describe this idol here in verses 3 and 4? How does he describe it? 
he calls it an image of what? Jealousy. Of jealousy. Something that makes him jealous. I want you to, I want to put it to you this way. I think we lose sight of how much God wants to be with us. I think we lose sight of how much God wants us to be, not only with him, but how much he wants to be with us. I want to take you on a little journey real quick to show you the heart of God and how much he desires. The reason he's jealous is he wants to be everything. He wants to be with them. He wants to be, have them focusing on him. And they're looking at everything else for their provision and for their the welfare. So go with me to John chapter 17. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying right before he goes to the cross. And I want to show you a couple of things that he says in this prayer. John 17, verses 24 through 26. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, he's, that's us, may be with me where I am. That's my desire, Jesus says, that we be together. To see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Look at Jesus' prayer. He says, Father, I want them to be with me where I am. I want them to see my glory. And not only that, I want the love that you have for me to be made known to them. I want them to understand, as Paul prayed, the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. I want them to understand that. And I've made it known, and I'm going to continue to make it known. I don't think we fully grasp how much God wants to be with us. Go to John chapter 14. Just prior to this, Jesus talking to his disciples right before the cross in verses 15 through 21. With this in mind of his desire to be with us, listen to how he words this again. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And by the way, the commandment here in this passage is to believe that he is who he says he is. That's the commandment he wants you to believe. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. And I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I love that. I'm not going to give birth to you, have you become born again, go back to my father's and leave you on the side of the road. I'm not going to have you as an orphan. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you and yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you're going to see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you'll know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. Listen and manifest myself to him. You see it? Folks, I'm, I, it's, just, it's amazing to me how much we don't fully understand how much God wants to be with us. How much, well, the Bible says his spirit yearns intensely. Jealous. John, in James chapter 4, it talks about that, how he wishes. Well, he's grieved when we look other places for our provision, for our supply, for our direction. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verses 1 through 4. I've taught the book of Revelation for years, many, many, many times. And this is one of my most favorite passages of the whole section. Because one time, I think it was like the second or third time that I taught through the book, this version jumped off the page. I had never really seen it in this light. In Revelation 21, look at verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, who's saying this, by the way, if it's coming from the throne? God. A loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God loudly proclaims, Now I get to be with them. Have you understood the heart of God? He's not like those false gods who you have to do all this stuff to get their attention. We have to cut yourself or you have to give up or kill your children or all these different things. God, the true God, the only God is the one who came down to be with us. And not only did he come down to be with us in this time period where he was setting the stage for the Messiah to come. He built a place and he had built a place where he could be with them. His glory. Remember, it was on the mountain. And they were afraid to go anywhere near the mountain. And he had them build this holy of holy place so that his glory would be there in their midst at all times. And what did they do? They ignored the fact that he wanted to be with them. And they actually turned their back on him and began to worship other things. He not only wants to be with us, he strongly desires to be the center of our whole lives. I've touched on that. Let me just show you a couple of scriptures along that line. I touched on it earlier. Let me just read it to you. James chapter 4. Listen, look at verses 4 and 5. James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people. By the way, written to the church. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Kind of like you were just talking about, Bill. The fact that we can talk about how his spirit was in the temple and they were turning to other false gods. He's now come to live within us. Is he the center of your life? Do you talk to him all the time? Are you walking and talking with him? I remember as a kid, my favorite song still is, In the Garden. And it's ironic to me as I travel around and deal with churches and try to help churches, even, the, even churches that are still using hymn books, I try to help them get back to walking with God. Their favorite hymn is, He walks with me and talks with me. Yet these people have no idea what it means to walk with God and talk with God. They're too busy living by the rules and the regulations and what it means to be a good whatever, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, instead of walking with God and listening to God. And I want to challenge you. We can sit here and look at what Israel was doing, but the Spirit of God is showing us things that have happened and to show us who we are apart from Christ and also at the same time to challenge us the Spirit of God lives within you, and He yearns jealously when you look anywhere else for everything that He wants to provide. Oh, and what does He want to provide? Not just a job or a nice marriage or all that kind of stuff. He wants to provide you peace and joy, contentment. All these things that we're really lacking, we pretend that we're not, but many of us are. And that's because the Spirit of God says when you're looking other places, taking your eyes off of Him, He yearns jealously. We're all looking for love. And he's pouring it out. But we're not look, we're looking. I think the song goes in the wrong places. Go to Micah chapter 6. I'm not going to sing it because I want you to stay for the rest of the study. <laughs> Go to Micah chapter 6. Look at verses 6 through 8. This truth has been here all throughout the whole scriptures. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8.
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? What kind of worship does He want from me? With calves a year old? Or will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then God speaks and says, He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He doesn't want us to do all these sacrifices and all these things that are ritualistic. And we're going to get into that tonight. And you're going to be surprised at some of the things I bring out to you tonight that we do, that we realize are of no value. We don't realize are of no value. He doesn't want us to have all these ritualistic ideas of what it means to serve God. He wants us just to walk with Him. I remember when I was pastor here at this church on Wednesday nights, I would teach. And I remember there would be a group of folks that would come for the prayer service. And I would always teach the Bible as we'd spend time in prayer as well. And I remember even as pastor of this church and dealing with people on Wednesday nights, which you would consider be the cream of the crop, if you will. Because that's the ones we think are the best, the ones that come Wednesday night. You know, they're better than everybody else. And I would ask that group, what has Jesus been telling you today? And I'd hear crickets. Because very few of us really know what it means to walk with God and to follow the Lord and to listen to his voice to be led of the Spirit. God says, all along, I've already told you, I want you to do all this other outward ritualistic stuff. I want you just to act justly, love kindness, and just walk humbly with me. Go real quick to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. I just didn't feel like God wanted us to just skip over the fact that he called that idol the image of jealousy. Because that image of jealousy was going to cause him to leave the sanctuary. Malachi chapter 3. Listen closer to this passage. Look at verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see there's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and those who do not serve Him. Is God paying attention to those who actually trust Him and those who walk with Him? He sure is. And your names are being written down. Your names are being written down. I'm not going to have you turn there. You know the passage, but in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33, how Jesus said, don't worry about what you're eating, what are you going to drink? You know, God knows. It's the Gentiles. In other words, those who don't know God, those pagans who run after all these things. But your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. Therefore, don't worry about that stuff. What does he want us to do? Seek first him and his kingdom. And everything else be taken care of. God saw this idol as an image that made him jealous. Why? Because he wanted to be first. And he still is that same God. Go back to chapter 8 of Ezekiel. I touched on this. I'm going to just show you a couple of passages real quick that kind of show it. Because the people of Israel had chosen to worship someone else, these false gods, in the place that God had built so he could dwell with them, God chose to leave the temple. Here in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 4, it says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. But then look at verses 5 and 6. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. 
So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? To drive me far away from my sanctuary. By the way, let me just stop real quick. And as I show you in just a second, that God's spirit left the temple because of their idolatry. Because they had worshipped these other idols instead of him. And he left. Let me ask you a question. Will God's spirit leave churches today? Now, before you answer, let it run through your uh, little prayer process. Will God's spirit leave churches today? Very good. I want you to pray through this. I don't want you to give the flip answer because we hear people say all the time, oh, the spirit of God's left that place. If there is a believer in the building, the Spirit of God is not going to leave. I want you to be real careful about how flippant we are about, oh, oh I, I don't agree with those people. God's Spirit left that church. No. If there's a believer there, His Spirit is not left. Oh, He may get quiet. He may be grieved. He may be quenched. But He has promised that He would never leave us nor forsake us if there's a believer there. Oh, and let me say something else to you. The prophet in me has to be real careful when I'm traveling around and speaking at different places because I don't know how many times I've heard the worship leader get up and say, the Bible says if two or more are gathered, then the Lord is there. That means the Lord's here today and everything in me wants to jump up and say, so if I was here all by myself, the Lord wouldn't be here? <laughs> it's not even at all what that passage in Matthew 18 is talking about. We just got to understand, folks, the Spirit of God indwells us and the Spirit of God will never leave a church. Because the church is the people. Well, you have the seven churches in Revelation, and he didn't leave them, really. He sure didn't. And they, they were, they were, yeah, he said, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to purify you. Spirit of God won't leave a church if there are believers there. But in this instance, because he did not indwell them, he left the sanctuary. Go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Look at verses 18 and 19. We'll get to this in more detail when we get to chapter 9 and 10. But in chapter 10, look at verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. He has been over the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. And if you were to go back and look in chapter 9, you'll see there comes a point where he goes up to the threshold. And he now goes over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance in the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. He was over the physical cherubim that had made, been made there in, in the, for the uh, Ark, of the, Ark of the Covenant. But his spirit lifted up from there, went to the threshold of the temple. And then the actual cherubim came, and he was above them. And remember, wherever they go, he went, and he left. He left the temple. Go to chapter 8 of Ezekiel, verses 7 through 13. Ezekiel is taken further into the temple complex. God shows him even worse abominations. Look at verses 7 through 13. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. When I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things, and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. 
Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel of house are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. What was being done in the temple now was being done in secret, but God knew. And 70 elders, this is supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, were burning incense to pictures of all different kinds of animals on the walls. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. My prayer is, is the, the more you walk with the Lord and more you study His Word, whenever you run across a passage of Scripture, your first thought will be not be, well, I think, but your first thought will be, that goes right along with another passage. You understand what I'm saying? That's what my prayer is. That will help you to understand that you're really starting to walk with the Lord where His Word becomes in your heart. Because we'll read stuff and sometimes we'll go, well, I think, no, give up what you think. I pray that you know the word so well that as you read a passage like that about them worshiping all these different animals that the Spirit of God will bring to your remembrance right then. And you know the word of God. Things like this. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You think God knows what's going on? Of course He does. Let me ask you a question. Does worship of animals continue to this day? Can anybody give me some examples? I heard, heard someone say fried chicken. That was painful. But uh, um, no. But when we're talking about worshiping animals, though, we're talking about where they actually seek direction. Okay, you got Hinduism that says the cow is holy. Has anybody, go ahead. Has anybody been to a Chinese restaurant and seen the, ta- the placemat? And everybody wants to check their year, what animal they are. And they, they, this animal better not marry with this animal. And you got to watch out, folks. That kind of stuff is still there for all of us. I, I'm just getting started. I'm just going to warn you right now. You're going to find out. Even some of us Baptists have carried some of idolatry into our worship. Now, I want you to stick with me, though. As I lay some of these things out tonight, I'm also going to lay them out with a word of, word of caution. You're not the Holy Spirit. You do not own the souls of the people around you. As the Spirit of God begins to speak to you, it is not your job to go fix everybody else's personal walk with the Lord. There are too many Christians that God convicts them of something in their life, and immediately everybody else needs to stop doing that same thing. So as we look at this, I'm going to let the Spirit of God speak to us, because you're going to see that there's some freedom in this as well, because of who we are in Christ. But at the same time, I want you to be alert to anything that you put confidence in besides Jesus himself. I'm going to say it to you again, because that's going to be very key for where we're going to be going. 
I want you to be careful and alert to the Spirit of God showing you anything that you put confidence in apart from Jesus himself. That's very important. And I'll show you in just a little bit. As you know from our study here in Ezekiel 8, things got even worse. In verses 14 through 18, we're not going to take the time. Actually, we will take the time. I want you to read it one more time. As we get to verses 14 through 18, God shows Ezekiel women in the temple weeping for Tammuz and then others worshiping the sun in the temple itself. Go to chapter 8, verses 14 through 18. And then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. I'm going to lay this all out for you in just a little bit. Stick with me. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. To understand this that's going on here in the worship of the sun and the worshiping of weeping for Tammuz, we need to go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm going to take you back with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Like I told you at the beginning of this study, there's no way you can study the book of Ezekiel without studying the book of Jeremiah. And honestly, you could, if you wanted to, also tie in the book of Isaiah as well. The three of them were all being used of God to prophesy to the nation of Israel at the same time period. Isaiah spoke to both the northern and southern kingdoms, Jeremiah as well. Ezekiel speaks only to the southern kingdom and to the exiles and to those who were back in Jerusalem at that time. But during this time period, all these things that God's speaking about are happening. And so to understand the weeping for Tammuz, we've got to go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 and see some things that are happening that Jeremiah talks about, or God talks about through Jeremiah, which will help us understand a little bit more about this weeping for Tammuz. Look at chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. Jeremiah 7, verse 16. As for you, God tells Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place and upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Jump over to chapter 44 of Jeremiah. We get a little more information. Jeremiah chapter 44, look at verses 15 through 30. Then all the women who knew that, the, sorry, all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women stu who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah in the, and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. 
But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and famine. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven, do you you think this is being repeated a few times? When we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as it is to this day. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no longer be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. Now, these people had been worshiping, and now at this point it had become mainly done by the women, had been worshiping this queen of heaven. By the way, is that a good thing according to the scriptures? Keep that in mind for later on. The queen of heaven, and I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version here. The queen of heaven was the title given to Ishtar or Ashtoreth. You've heard that name a lot in the Bible. The Babylonian goddess of fertility. All this false religion and organized false religion can be traced all the way back to Babylon. We're not going to take the time to get into Nimrod in chapter 10 and all these kinds of things. But let me just say to you this way. The queen of heaven was the title given to Ishtar or Ashtoreth, the Babylonian goddess of fertility. Supposedly, she was the wife of Baal or Molech, as others called him. You've heard those names as well. The many different stories passed down through the ages vary a little bit. But the common thread is that Ishtar's lover was a demigod or part human, part God named Tammuz, who was responsible for prosperity in agriculture. He would come miraculously to life in the spring and things would then grow, but then he would die in the summer solstice, so women would weep for him since their tears would water the earth and bring him back in the spring. Does anybody remember what time of year it was that Ezekiel was taken to go see the women weeping for Tammuz? Do you remember I told you at the beginning? It was August, September, in that time period when things dry out. And this cult idolatrous cult, which mirrored a lot of things about Jesus, the miraculous son, a lover, they called him at times. There was a man named Tammuz. Oh, by the way, does anybody know anything about the Jewish calendar? Does anybody want to take a guess at what the fourth month is still called? Tammuz. You go check me. The fourth month of the Jewish calendar is still named Tammuz. And this idolatry, this seeking the fertility goddess, Molech, the god, if they, they small g, 
or others called them Baal. They would worship these false gods in hopes that these false gods would provide fertility, large families, agricultural growth. And because the queen of heaven and her lover Tammuz were tied to fertility, both agriculturally and humanly, sexual prostitution became a part of this cultic worship and even happened in the temple. You would actually go and have sex with the priest or the priestesses in hopes that that would produce fertility in your family. I'm going to come back to the queen of heaven in just a little bit, but I just want to take a second tonight and say to you, idolatry makes its way into many forms of our worship. I'm going to talk about us for a little bit, just briefly. Again, I really believe the Holy Spirit is able to convict and to open eyes, so it's not my job to tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing. I'm just going to let the scripture speak. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Remember, what I told you was, allow the Spirit of God to convict you and to show you Anything that you put confidence in besides Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul's dealing with the fact that this idolatry had kind of crept into the church, even in the beginning stages. Colossians chapter 2, starting in, in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jump over to verse 16. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, that's avoiding certain things, on insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all per perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul was saying there are people in the church that are going to be coming along and saying, you want to get closer to God? Follow these rules. And all of a sudden, without realizing it, the people put their confidence in their ability to follow those rules. How many were raised that Sunday was the Sabbath? And you weren't allowed to do certain things on the Sabbath. Even though the scripture said, don't let anybody judge you and will not you keep a Sabbath. Yet we felt we were closer to God when we kept those Sabbath rules, didn't we? We put our confidence, we put our confidence in something besides Jesus himself. Now I thought I could take the time to kind of go into this more. But I found it would be far more helpful for me just to read to you a small section from A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. In chapter 10, he deals with 
the whole sacred secular mess up. In other words, we've been kind of taught that certain things are sacred and certain things are secular, haven't we? And there are sacred things and secular things, or sacred, sacred days and secular days. And he blows that all up from Scripture. And by the way, if you don't know, A.W. Tozer was an older man, just a wise, wise man who knew the Lord, but he also knew what it meant to walk with God. He was fundamental in his scriptural understanding, yet at the same time, he was led of the Spirit. And if you've never read The Pursuit of God, I challenge you to do so. This is in the very end. This is in chapter 10. And I'm going to read to you what he says in the middle of this chapter. He says, A concomitant of the error which we have been discussing is the sacred-secular antithesis as applied to places. It is a little short of astonishing that we can read the New Testament and still believe in the inherent sacredness of some places. Haven't you ever heard people say, That's the sanctuary. This error is so widespread that one feels all alone when he tries to combat it. It has acted as a kind of dye to color the thinking of religious persons and has colored the eyes as well, colored the eyes as well so that it is all but impossible to detect its fallacy. In the face of every New Testament teaching to the contrary, it has been said and sung throughout the century, centuries and accepted as a part of the Christian message, that which it most surely is not. Only the Quakers so far as my knowledge goes, have had the perception to see the error and the courage to expose it. Here are the facts as I see them. For 400 years, Israel had dwelt in Egypt, surrounded by the crassest idolatry. By the hand of Moses, they were brought out at last and started toward the land of promise. The very idea of holiness had been lost to them. To correct this, God began at the bottom. He localized himself in the cloud and fire. And later, when the tabernacle had been built, he dwelt in fiery manifestation in the Holy of Holies. By innumerable distinctions, God taught Israel the difference between holy and unholy. There were holy days and holy vessels, holy garments. There were washings, sacrifices, offerings of many kinds. By these means, Israel learned that God is holy. He's separate. He's different. It was this that he was teaching them, not the holiness of things or places. The holiness of Jehovah was the lesson they must learn. Then came the great day when Christ appeared. Immediately he began to say, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. The Old Testament schooling was over. When Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened to everyone who would enter in faith. Christ's words were remembered. The hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Shortly after, Paul took up the cry of liberty and declared all meats clean, every day holy, all places sacred, and every act acceptable to God. The sacredness of times and places a half-light necessary to the education of the race passed away before the full sun of spiritual worship. The essential spirituality of worship remained the possession of the church until it was slowly lost with the passing of years. Then the natural legality of fallen hearts of men began to introduce the old distinctions. The church came to observe again days and seasons and times. Certain places were chosen and marked out as holy in a special sense. Differences were observed between one and another one day or place or person. The sacraments were first two, then three, then four, until with the triumph of Romanism, they were fixed at seven. From this bondage, reformers and Puritans and mystics have labored to free us. Today, the trend in conservative circles is back toward that bondage again. 
It is said that a horse, after it has been let out of a burning building, will sometimes by a strange obstinacy break loose from its rescuer and dash back into the building again to perish in the flame. By some such stubborn tendency toward error, fundamentalism in our day is moving back towards spiritual slavery. The observation of days and times is becoming more and more prominent among us. Lent and Holy Week and Good Friday are words heard more and more frequently upon the lips of gospel Christians. We do not know when we're well off. What he's saying is this. And what I want you to hear is this. If you thought about why the people of Israel went back to idolatry and this religious acts, because there's some value that fe it feels good to us that we did something for God. Do you see it? And what God wants us to do is to trust Him. And He will provide to walk with Him and to be led and to do when He speaks and don't do until He speaks. But there's something in us that wants to keep Lent or celebrate Good Friday. And listen closely, and I want you to hear this. We have to be real careful that we don't start judging people. Go to with me to Romans chapter 14. Some of you are wrestling with whether or not you're going to go to a Christmas Eve service. And some of you will feel better because you did. Be careful. I'm not saying it's right or wrong to do either. But if you feel like you're closer to God because you did something, you've put your confidence in something that's not Christ. Now, hopefully, your desire is you want to go and worship. But if you're doing it because this will count, do you see the difference? It's subtle. And that's why we should not ever try to judge people's motives. We don't know why they do what they do. Go ahead. I think it's not only they, that it'll count, but we feel like we have to. It's right. the reverse, which is just the same. Um, yeah. We'll be judged <clears throat> yeah, exactly. by our brothers. Listen to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Look at verses 1 through 12. As for the one, Paul says, who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Do you see it? Why then do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. One of the ways you can show you really trust Jesus 
is you won't make it your job to make sure that your brothers and sisters are living the way you think they ought to live. The same Jesus that lives within you that is making you become more and more like him is going to get them there as well. And so as you let the spirit of God show you whether or not this attitude of I need to do something in order to be pleasing to God, I need to go through the ritual, I need to be observant, I need to do these things. If you're putting your confidence in your effort and what you've done, your faith is not in Christ. Well, then there's all those people that are so worried. Well, if you tell people that, they won't do anything. You've got a small view of God if you think that uh, he's not able to get his stuff done if you show people what the Bible actually says. Well, I want to do that in closing tonight. Some of you have been probably taught that Mary's the queen of heaven. We've even seen the buildings that have her name on it. And I just want to just tell you straight up, there is no queen of heaven. There's only one king of kings. And that's God alone. We should worship and pray to God alone. I'm going to give you some scriptures to look at. I'm going to just quote them to you, explain them. I want you to write them down and look at it and double check me later on. The apostles did not want to be worshipped. In Acts chapter 10 verses 25 and 26, we'll see that the people started to worship the apostles. And they quickly said, get up, we're just men just like you. There was another place where they started to call Paul a Zeus and, and another one, you know, uh, another God, a Greek God and, and Apollos. And, and they, they, they was like, guys, stop. And they even had a hard time getting people to stop sacrificing to him. The apostles did not want to be worshipped. They said, worship God alone. The angels do not want to be worshipped. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, and again, a second time, a little later on, we see John, when he's overwhelmed with the visions of God, of the new Jerusalem, and all these things that are going to happen, he falls down to worship at the feet of the angel. What does the angel say? Get up! I'm just a servant like you are. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the Bible says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Some of you have been taught that you can pray to Mary for her to intercede on your behalf. And there's a famous prayer along that line. I just want you to hear the truth. There is only one who is to be worshipped. And the apostles didn't want to be worshipped. And the angels didn't want to be worshipped. Mary doesn't want to be worshipped either. And listen closely. I'm going to show you something you might not know. Go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, look at verse 27. Luke 11, verse 27. And as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Even Jesus deflected the worship of Mary. Did you see it? The lady said, she should be worshipped. Jesus said, no, don't go there. She even in her Magnificat cried out, my soul rejoiced in God, my Savior. She was just as much a sinner as you and I. Hey, we thank God for her obedience, don't we? But be careful of worshipping anyone. There's a tendency for all of us. We don't realize it, but we have certain preachers we like better than others. 
We want to follow. I'm a follower of this person, and be careful. That happened in the early church in Corinth. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Christ. And all Paul had to say was, folks, folks, one's a hammer, one's a screwdriver, one's a wrench. They're all different types. They have different roles. Why are you worshiping the hammer over the screwdriver? In the same way, thank God for those who let him use them. But learn to put your full dependence on Jesus Christ. Hey, I got to be careful myself. I have a ministry that we're supported by gifts from individuals. It's very tempting for me as a human to look at people who have more money than others and think they might be a blessing to the ministry. And then God says, you want to put your confidence in that person with the big paycheck? What are you going to do when they die? Go back to you, Lord? Maybe that's what I do? We all have to be real careful. Go ahead, Jeff. In Ezekiel 8, 12, at the end of that verse, it says exactly what you're saying. They, they declared through their worship that God was not enough. Yep. For the Lord, they felt the Lord had forsaken them. They're declaring God wasn't enough. Yep. When we look to anything else, that's what we're saying. I'm going to close tonight with the last part. Go back to the very end of, of chapter 8 of Ezekiel. L look at what it says here. In uh, um, We'll go to verse 17. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Now, for years, I've wrestled with that, and I dug, dug, dug. What does this mean? And to be honest with you, the best we can come up with, it's not drugs. People have tried to make that drugs. It's not drugs. What this simply means is this. You ever heard the term thumbing your nose at somebody? You ever heard that? That's pretty much what it means. It just simply means, I heard you. I'm not listening. And what they said to God was, we heard you. We're not listening. Isn't that what they said to Jeremiah back in Jeremiah chapter 44? We know what you said, but we're still going to do it. God says, when people decide, I know what he said, and I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, I'm going to thumb my nose at them, put the branch to their nose. God says, then I'll pour out my wrath. Thank God we're in a relationship where he will not pour out his wrath upon us because we're in Christ. But at the same time, Realize that that tendency to idolatry or putting your confidence in anything besides Christ, anyone besides Christ, anything you do besides Christ, it will pull you away and cause the spirit that's within you to be jealous. That's why we need to daily take this flesh and put it on the altar and daily receive those mercies that are new every morning and say, Lord, apart from you, I can't live this Christian life that you've designed for me to live. But we're going to get there. Because you promise what you started, you'll finish. And if we're still here in 2017, I'll see you then.